Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, here's the thing. We're all about listening to your natural hunger cues. You are the expert of your own body, and we won't pretend to know it better than you do. That being said, sometimes those natural hunger cues can become hijacked by certain cravings. So how do you cut through those cravings and navigate your true hunger hormones? That's where Dr. Amy Shaw comes in. She's a double board certified integrative medicine doc who specializes in food allergies, hormones, and gut health. It's safe to say she is one of the leading experts on everything you need to know about hunger hormones. And it's an honor to have her back on the show. Amy, how are you? So good to see you. So great to see you, Jason. So it's been a while. I think it's been almost a year. Uh, in addition to, to writing your, your new amazing book, I'm So Effing Hungry, what have you been up to? Mostly, you know, the same, you know, we're, I know your parent, I'm parent, I have a practice still that I um, work at, and I'm always working on new projects, new ways uh, to get the message out. I've really been loving um, the gut immune mind connection uh, recently, especially as it pertains to nutrition. So I've been doing a lot of education around that. Um, but really, this book is is the big thing. So the title of the book, as I mentioned, is I'm So Effing Hungry. And at the highest level, I, this is a big question, but what's wrong with our hunger and, and hunger cues? What are we getting so wrong? What we're getting wrong is that we're really not nourishing our bodies, right? Where when you nourish your cravings the proper way, you're not hungry anymore. You're craving the right things. You're feeling happy um, and you're living a healthier life. In America today, in the modern world today, we are seeing skyrocketing depression and anxiety. This will continue to skyrocket to 2050 that they're looking at you know, 35 to 50% rise in rates of anxiety and depression. We are seeing a rise in diabetes, in heart disease, um, in hypertension, all of these things that if we were actually nourishing our cravings and controlling, you know, really feeding ourselves, we would not be seeing. So my my goal for this book is saying like, hey, we're missing the big picture here. We're going in the wrong direction. We're not nourishing ourselves the way we should be. And it really starts with that gut. And so before we go to the, the gut brain connection, I, I do think it's important to distinguish between, and I have trouble distinguishing this sometimes, I think everyone does, is hunger, cravings, and appetite. Yeah. Well, I think hunger and cravings is the big differentiator here. Um, when you are truly hungry, um, you have a need for nutrients. We are human beings that need food and water, and our body does not want us to forget to eat. And so hunger is a cue to nourish your body. So we have hormones like ghrelin that stimulate hunger. Um, where, you know, if you didn't have ghrelin, if you had a really busy day at the office, um, and, you know, think thousands of years ago, if you were in a conflict or something, you wouldn't remember to eat. Um, and so hunger is these hormones and these cues to remind ourselves to actually fill ourselves with nutrients. So hunger is a physiological cue. 
cravings, on the other hand, are a completely different set of um, hormones and neurological pathways. Cravings are a physiological way to keep us motivated um, to do more. It's the molecule, you know, we always talk about dopamine. Dopamine is what drives cravings. So cravings will happen even if you don't have a physiological need for nutrients. It is not there to um, remind you to eat nourishing foods. It is there to remind you to pursue the things that release dopamine. The things that release dopamine can be good or can be bad. So if you think about it thousands of years ago, it could it was good. And in some cases in the modern world, it's also good. So you're walking through the forest um, and you're just on your way. And all of a sudden you notice this big, beautiful fruit tree and it is like full of juicy fruit. Your brain starts to light up in anticipation. You eat that fruit. You get a burst of dopamine. You um, will remember the feeling and the path to that tree. And that was very protective, right? Because later on, when you're needing food, you actually remember how to get there. You remember you know, exactly what it tasted like and what it felt like. And you can share with your family and your village and your, um, your whole community. Dopamine is a very strong driver of action. And so that's why now in today's world, when, even if you're full, you ate a full dinner, you will be sitting there and you're like, I'm going to get in my car and drive across town and buy that donut because I am craving it. And that has nothing to do with nourishing your body. It has everything to do with that dopamine. And dopamine is built so that it's like you get a lot of pleasure, but then it's mixed with discomfort. So after you're done eating it, you're like, when can I have this again? Like when, you know, that feeling like when you really crave something and you have it, it's not pure pleasure. It's like pleasure mixed with a little bit of discomfort very quickly. And you're like, I want it again, or am I eating too much? Or when can I do this again? And so it's your body's way of keeping you motivated to go back to that action. So as I think about the, you know, you mentioned drivers, drivers for hunger, cravings, I think appetite is rather straightforward. I think of not being hydrated as I'm drinking water. I think about stress, boredom, fatigue. And I think this segues to the, the gut mind connection. Can you talk about the roles, the, the roles that these real drivers play? Yeah. The gut is probably even a, it, it is a stronger driver of cravings than even our mind. So yes, like we think about these traditional things like, hey, um, you know, I'm bored, I'm um, stressed. But what we are learning now through the science is that actually cravings, most of your cravings are coming from the gut bacteria that are fighting um, for the messaging to your brain. So what they're doing is they're sending messages to your brain to crave certain foods and activities. So 
got bacteria want to survive and they're able to actually kind of hijack the communication systems in our body to, you know, satisfy their own hunger and cravings. And so what sometimes that, you know, there's a great example of this because it's a hard concept. It's very foreign to think about it this way because we never talk about this. Um, They took these animals and they gave them two different solutions of water. One was a um, super sugary, tasty water. And the other one was a flavorless water, but it had these fat droplets in it that the gut bacteria that they had, um, you know, loved. Okay. So in the beginning, the rats um, drank the sugary water. They loved the sugary water, but quickly within a day or two, they switch completely to the fatty water, the tasteless fatty water. Their taste buds didn't even taste it, but it was the gut bacteria that loved that water. And so your the taste preference is completely changed to what the gut bacteria wanted. And that was one of the most land, you know, the landmark kind of trials of the the mechanisms of this that, hey, even though something is tasty to your taste buds or to your brain, this craving from your gut can override that. And so how do we set up our gut so that our gut isn't giving us the wrong signal? So as you know, um, you know, there's many things that we are doing wrong with our diet today. Um, and one, that's one of the biggest ways I can say that we can set ourselves up for success. You know, the things that we shouldn't be doing is over using antibiotics, both as, you know, uh, medications when we don't need them, but also over sanitizing our environment. Like, do you really need to use the antibacterial everything, you know, soap and cleansers? And um, do you need to take that antibiotic for this infection? Um, so not killing the gut bacteria is number one, and then feeding them the food that they need to thrive is number two. Because when we nourish the gut, we can actually change our cravings so that they can help us um, make better decisions, feel happier, and be healthier overall. And in terms of those foods, what are some of your favorites? So gut bacteria love fiber, fibrous foods. Um, what we did in our modern ultra-processed world is we made it easy. We took out the fiber and everything, right? So ultra processed foods are devoid of fiber. So you want to eat real foods, foods that don't um, have labels on them, fruits, vegetables, um, whole grains, things that are full of fiber. Um, one of the biggest things that we've seen in a landmark study recently is that um, fermented foods, fermented foods make the biggest difference in the gut microbiome. Um, fermented foods like yogurt would be the easiest one um, to do uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, kefir, um, kimchi, kombucha, miso. So adding more actual bacterial laden foods into your diet is another way of uh, improving that gut health. I love apple cider vinegar. I'll do a tablespoon a couple times a day. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, I usually say to people kind of add it to water. So it's diluted. It doesn't give you that acid reflux. Some people, you know, you can definitely burn your esophagus um, if you're taking it by the mouthful. So you got to be careful with your teeth and your esophagus, but it is a great, easy way. You can add it to your salads, you can add it to a glass of water to start having fermented foods in your diet. And so it seems to be, this philosophy of intuitive eating seems to be somewhat 
problematic in that, look, I'm all on board with listening to your body, but sometimes your, your body tells you, you want a donut at 3 PM and look, sometimes you want a donut you deserve a donut and you should have a donut, but, but you don't deserve it every day at 3 PM. And I think that's where it becomes a little slippery. How do you think about intuitive eating and the possible issue here? Yeah, the you know, when you hear the term intuitive eating and you haven't gone through the plan or the steps, you know, to to really uncover your intuition, what you're gonna hear, what I heard, is, you know, if your body is telling you that you love Kit Kats, um, you should have a lot of Kit Kats. Like that's part of it. What I, I didn't realize is that the reason I liked Kit Kats was that when I was a kid. And we moved from India to America. My dad would take me to the store and I love spending time with my dad. And he would buy me a Kit Kat when I did well. And it gave me this feeling of um, happiness to be with him. And it became a neural pathway. And this neurological pathway was so deep rooted and so many years ago that now I think every time I did something well, I wanted to get a Kit Kat to like reward myself for it. And I had to remember that this is not necessarily what is best for my body, best for my gut um, and best for my mind. And so I had to retrain that pathway. So what I always say is like, sometimes we have memories, neurological memories, which what intuition really is that are negative, right? Like we've had bad experiences or negative experiences that get kind of get embedded in your neurological pathways. You have to be able to know when um, maybe that's not a good kind of intuition feeling. And when you want to, how you can retrain that is what I started to do. Like I said, okay, I'm going to reward myself. I'm going to, I want to give myself a dopamine first, but I'm not going to choose a Kit Kat. I'm going to choose a high quality dark chocolate. And I really talk about it in the book, how you can actively retrain that neurological pathway to then crave um, and embed that new habit into your body, basically. So what does that look like? Is it as simple as saying, okay, it's that thing again, it's that Kit Kat or whatever it might be. And, and just say, all right, got it, not going to do it, going to reach for this other thing instead? Is it that simple or is it more complex? It's kind of like reverse engineering how dopamine works, right? So the strongest release of dopamine and the highest chance of it becoming a permanent neural pathway is when it's an unexpected intermittent reward. So intermittent unexpected rewards have the biggest burst of dopamine and the highest chance of getting embedded in that pathway. So think gambling, think video games, you know, these are unexpected, you know, you're playing, you're playing, you suck, you know, you're losing money. And then all of a sudden you get the big pot and it's like this big explosion of dopamine. And um, our body remembers that feeling and it wants it again and again and again. Right. So let's reverse engineer that and say, all right, give yourself an intermittent reward that's unexpected three times a week. Maybe you put it on your calendar and it pops up, you know, those notifications or you have some someone else assigned um, to give that to you. But this time you pick something you really love, but is healthy. So in the case of, you know, trying to break your sugar addiction, you say, uh, oh, I got this pop up. It's Wednesday at four o'clock. Wow. I get to have my dark chocolate today. 
or, you know, right now. And you take that dark chocolate and you do a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. So basically saying, I'm so amazing that I'm choosing this dark chocolate. I am um, going to make a better decision. This is going to be so delicious. This is the highest quality dark chocolate I picked from this um, beautiful artisanal chocolate maker. And basically, so it's a three, two, one techniques, two minutes of this kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, and then one minute to sit and savor it. So three, two, one, three random days um, that you're going to get this reward. It has to be random and has to be not on a pattern. It can't be Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon. You know, it has to be intermittent surprise. And that is a way that you can actually retrain your brain to love that chocolate and feel a big burst of dopamine when you get that instead of the negative thing. So I'm curious, it makes a lot of sense. What do you find to be the biggest issue? Is it reaching for the thing or reaching for the thing and not being able to stop eating the thing? You know, it's like, do you have, do you have the, the one, one scoop of ice cream or do you eat the whole pint and then some? Right, right. I think, um, I think it's reaching for the thing because I think, uh, the way that the cravings are coming from the gut, for example, they're sending signals um, to the brain to um, seek out that food, right? And um, when you get up, get out of your chair, get in the car, drive across town and go get that um, food, that whole kind of 30 to 60 minute process was fueled by dopamine. And if you could change that, and start to crave something like I say, a, a high quality piece of dark chocolate, um, you would be now doing certain actions to get that dark chocolate. So changing what you're craving happens, um, you know, at way before you actually get the food itself. And, you know, you wrote a whole book about fatigue, but you know, f- fatigue is real. And, and poor, you know, when you have a night where you don't sleep well and you're fatigued, it tends to have a, a cascading effect across everything. Can you talk about what happens when you, when you wake up and you just know you haven't slept well for one reason or another? H- how do you stop yourself or, or from making poor decisions? Because at least in my experience, I've found when I have a poor night of sleep, you know, Maybe I don't go to the gym. Maybe I, you know, have that extra snack or treat or what have you. And and I, I don't think I'm alone here. Yeah, I think, you know, you're in the majority because I think, you know, we can all speak to when you have children, when you have a busy job, you know, you're probably not sleeping well and you're probably reaching for that extra snack. So I used to think that I'm reaching for sugar and caffeine because I'm tired. What I learned um, from the research is that actually your hunger hormones are actually out of whack when you lose sleep. So you actually have higher levels of ghrelin and lower levels of leptin. So you're less satisfied and you're hungrier when you don't get enough sleep. So it's not just in your head and it's not just you're craving, um, you know, sugary things. You're also having a little lower levels of, um, you know, serotonin and dopamine. And sometimes these foods are our, our body's way of like giving it a quick boost, you know? So not only are you hungrier in general, you're eating more food, 
you're less satisfied, but you're also kind of craving that little bit of serotonin and dopamine boost in your brain. And you're trying to get that through sugar, you know, fat, um, and salt. So if that feeling is very real, I feel better, first of all, but what should we do? Cause it happens to all of us. We, we know we haven't slept well. How do we, how do we stop ourselves from making all these poor decisions that we end up making? At least I'm speaking for myself. Exactly. So I think that one, you know, people will say everyone needs to get, you know, seven to nine hours of high quality sleep, but, but it's like, what do you do when you wake up? And that's not an option, at least for that night. Um, and so what I recommend is getting um, a bout of natural light, a bout of sunshine. Our circadian rhythms have uh, so much of an impact on how alert we feel, our dopamine levels, um, our level, our cognition, our mood, right? So getting that bout of direct sunlight that morning when you didn't get a good night's sleep is one of the best ways. And then the second thing is get your exercise on, especially high intensity exercise. It has a way of actually not only boosting your mood and energy levels, and it actually has a way of calming the hunger hormones. And so it can counteract, even though you think, oh, if I exercise, I'm going to be hungrier. No, it actually can calm the cravings, calm the hunger hormones, so that when you're done with your sunny walk and your high intensity workout, you're going to feel much happier, much more alert for the rest of the day than you would have otherwise. Do you have a threshold for a high, high intensity workout? Is it 10 minutes, 20 minutes? How do you think about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, a new study came out that just six, six minutes of high intensity um, movement was able to boost, you know, brain BDNF and mood chemicals. So you really don't need to be doing long bouts. I would say a 20 minute total workout. So you get a um, warm up in, you can do um, some kind of stretches and a cool down, and then you have your high intensity portion of six to 10 minutes. And, and is there an, an, a form of exercise that is going to do harm here? Harm? Yeah, in terms of is is there a specific type of exercise that could actually make things worse in terms of Well, this is, you know, here's how I always feel is that women when we're getting into our perimenopausal years um or um uh, men and women who are chronically stressed um shouldn't be doing high intensity exercise every single day um to the level of um and still skipping on their sleep and still dealing with their stress. So what my solution for getting a bout of sunlight, getting a high intensity workout is a short-term one. When you're looking in the macro, if you're someone who 365 days a year has in intense stress, or you're a woman who's approaching menopause in those last, you know, eight to 10 years, which is a long time, but, um, you know, in your late thirties and forties, um, and you're stressed, you're not sleeping well every single day, then adding stressors to your life, like a high intensity workout every morning is not necessarily going to be helpful. It's helpful in the short term, because you're anticipating that the next night, the night after you're going to get adequate sleep, you're going to control your stress. Um, but a lot of us kind of live in the zone, at least for short periods of our life, where you're just chronically stressed and chronically sleep deprived and um, 
participating in these early morning um, high intensity workouts and then fasting all day and then, you know, doing all these other stressors is just adding to the load um, and you're not going to get the results you want. So you mentioned mentioned morning and you also mentioned fasting. It sounds like morning is the best time of day in terms of time of day to exercise. So morning team, if you are comparing head to head, um, morning does seem to be the most effective at keeping the consistency of it for helping you with your hunger hormones for the rest of the day. Um, but you know, when it comes to exercise, any exercise is great. So if you miss the morning, that doesn't mean like, forget it. Like I, I'm not going to exercise for the rest of the day. You just, um, there's some benefits of afternoon exercise. You have your best level of strength in the afternoon. So there are some advantages, uh, but the morning definitely has an advantage to help you with those cravings and hunger hormones that we're talking about here. And I'm assuming nighttime is probably too late because the day is past. <laughs> well, a lot of people find exercise stimulating and most people find that it, unless you're doing a yoga, restorative yoga or something, nighttime is not the best time to be, you know, activating your body um, with that. And you mentioned intermittent fasting, circadian fasting, intermittent eating. There's various ways we can talk about this time restricted eating in the context of this conversation in trying to deal with hunger uh, and cravings, are there diminishing returns at a certain level of fasting? Like, is there a sweet spot? In other words, you know, if you do 18 or 20, um, maybe that's helpful for a little while with your cravings, but then it may hurt and then it ends up being exacerbated or there's more science with regards to the circadian or 13. How do you think about that in the context of fasting and the role it can play here? Well, I'll tell you this diet culture in general. So being on a diet or just stop, not eating because you're trying to control your weight um, has been shown to increase cravings and hunger. And I think so many women and men have dieted before and know this feeling like your hunger and your cravings are just the volume is turned way up when you've been trying to intentionally diet. And so I think of that with the fasting world, because there's a lot of overlap, right? You're intentionally um, kind of avoiding food for long periods of time, and you will um, often see a big increase in your hunger and cravings. And for me, that is what happened uh, when I just jumped into intermittent fasting without actually learning what my body could handle. I really saw an uptick when I broke my fast, I was just ravenous and I would eat horrible foods. And, um, and then you don't really get the benefits of intermittent fasting if you're doing it for metabolic benefits. And so uh, learning how to fast for your body so that it doesn't do that is tricky. Uh, in fact, I say that the best type of intermittent fasting is actually a little different than what most people do in the lay um, world. I actually think that fasting in the evening before you go to bed is much more important than fasting in the morning. Um, in fact, I recommend that most people um, can do two to three hours before bed, start your fast, and then just fast till the next morning. And maybe you delay your um, intake of coffee and food by 60 to 90 minutes to get the best benefits of the caffeine and to have 
very physiological um, intake of food. So if you think about thousands of years ago, you wouldn't roll out of bed and have your, you know, orange juice and bagel, you would probably get up, you'd go outside, you'd forage for food and probably an hour or two, um, maybe even a little bit longer, then you would break your fast. So I believe in breakfast, even though it's a little bit delayed. And I believe in um, having that fast before bed, because I think that's the most beneficial time for you to be fasting. So beyond that, you can personalize it for yourself. But this basic circadian style of fasting, everyone can do. You know, it's so interesting. We had Courtney Peterson at the University of Alabama, who does a lot of studies on on time-restricted eating. And essentially, she said the same thing where, and, and we've been doing it wrong, myself included, where I think many people were having dinner at regular time and possibly later in the evening, but then delaying breakfast or even skipping breakfast breakfast and starting at lunch whereas the research points to you should probably have dinner earlier and still eat breakfast maybe you delay it a little bit so it's just sort of shifting our rhythm a little bit very anti um culture um to have you know an early dinner and um you know have actual breakfast like when you have a real breakfast, like I talk about having a high, a breakfast high in dopamine rich foods. Um, these are Ooh, things give that it, don't- give us some, give us some dopamine rich foods. Yeah, so in the morning, you want to break your fast with dopamine rich foods because you want that motivation, you want that drive, you want that energy. Dopamine is closely related to norepinephrine, which gives you that adrenaline boost in the morning, right? So dopamine rich foods are the high protein foods. It's the yogurt, um, it's the egg scramble, it's a tofu scramble, it's the high protein foods, nuts and seeds, um, and dairy, uh, high protein, naturally high protein foods are the dopamine rich foods because they contain an amino acid called tyrosine, which converts into dopamine in the brain. And it's a great way to start your day. Anyways, we know that high protein breakfasts are um, great, you know, in the, in the, uh, muscle building and natural nutrition world, we always knew there's something good about having a low sugar, high protein breakfast. But now we know more evidence about how it boosts those neurotransmitters in your brain and you feel more motivated and alert and you feel less likely to reach for that mid-morning snack. Agreed. And so if that's a hack, if you will, I'm going to come back to hydration because what I found is Oftentimes they think I'm hungry, but I'm actually dehydrated. And in my view, hydration not only plays a huge role in our health, uh, I find it affects everything from my heart rate variability and resting heart rate as I track everything if I'm dehydrated, um, affects my energy levels, but also affects how much I eat. Um, and so can you talk about hydration and hydration potentially? One, how much is enough? But let's, let's start there. And, and and being able to distinguish between am I hydrated and or am I hungry? That's a that's a great um, point. So I've talked to some of the biggest experts in um, you know kidney health and um, hydration, and it, there's really no exact number. Um, this whole eight glasses a day, I mean, it's a made up number. Okay, so hydration is really what's hydrating to you, and that depends. Are you living in Miami um, or are you, you know, in a very um, cold place? Are you uh, expending a lot of energy? Um, are you doing a sauna, you know, every day? So 
it's really dependent on you. So dehydration is extremely common and it can result in fatigue and it results in cravings. It can result in all kinds of symptoms that doesn't even feel like thirst, right? And death. You can die from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can go weeks, if not months without food, but you cannot go without water. So because sleep, um, sleep number one, without, you know, you can die from not, it is, a, it is a, you know, you, you can die from not sleeping. It is a, it unfortunately is a proven CIA torture technique is, is sleep deprivation. So sleep. And then next is water hydration. It's an essential need for life. And um, so I always say that the way you know that you're hydrated is that when you go to the bathroom, that your urine is not dark yellow. Um, and it's almost like uh, it's almost clear once it goes into the toilet, like light yellow um, is what you're aiming for. And that's a nice way to know if you're hydrating. Of course, um, you know, if you're taking medications that color your urine, you can't really use that um, technique, but most people can. And then you can also start your day with a few glasses of water so that you don't get behind on your water for, for the rest of the day. Hydration um, can also be in the form of, you know, salt um, or electrolyte drinks that you can have during the day so that you can keep yourself hydrated. It's a very, it's like another, exactly what you said, not really a hack because it's essential for life, but it's another way to, um, control those hunger hormones and craving hormones. Well, you mentioned the hunger hormones and, and craving hormones. You also talk about in the book, the, the hunger hijackers. Yeah. I mean, there are things that kind of hijack our, uh, our hunger hormones. And I already talked about sleep being one of them, because I think that we have to understand that not only does sleep help us feel rested and less tired, and we talk about sleep all the time, but it actually helps us make better choices for food, makes us less likely to crave the bad stuff. Um, and our gut bacteria, just like us, they need sleep and rest also. And this, like I mentioned in the very beginning of this, our gut bacteria kind of run the show when it comes to cravings and hunger. And so giving them adequate sleep is a way um, uh, and sunlight is a way to, um, improve your hunger and cravings. And unfortunately we live in a world with hunger hijackers, right? We, I almost, I start the book by saying, it's really not your fault that you're feeling hungry and craving things all the time. We live in a world that, uh, we don't know how these hormones work, but companies know big food companies gambling companies, video game companies, they know how these hormones and pathways work. So when it talks, when we're talking about hunger, they know that there are pathways in your brain um, that they can kind of attack and hijack so that you crave these foods. There are foods that will create a dopamine explosion in your brain that can never be recreated with a actual food. What's like the worst example of that? I'm curious in your, I have some ideas. I want to hear what you think. Doritos, of course, is um, one of the classic examples of things that have that salty, sweet crunch. Um, you know, it, even just thinking about it, like gives it people a, 
explosion of dopamine in the brain, but it has that nice little um, salt, sugar, fat, all in one. Chocolate covered pretzels. Oh, chocolate covered pretzels. Yeah, there you go. Dopamine um, explosion. Okay, so what about um, Coke, you know, uh, uh, Coke and Pepsi? Um, all of those things are also really, you know, people crave, I mean, people crave those things, right? So those, what happens is there are actual experiments at food labs where they're creating flavors that have this bliss point that create this explosion that when you offer a child now, you say, hey, you want this orange or do you want this orange soda? They're naturally going to pick the orange soda because they've already learned that when they have this orange soda, they get an explosion of dopamine. But when they eat the orange, they just get like a water gun spray of dopamine, right? And that's, I think, the scariest thing in our world today is our children naturally will be, I know you have kids, Jason, so do I. My children are naturally drawn to things that give them the dopamine explosion. And it's physiological because their hunger hormones and uh, dopamine pathways have really been hijacked. Um, whereas until you explain to them why they crave those things, why those things are creating a dopamine explosion, they're basically going to keep choosing those. And now we know that 75% of an adolescent's diet is ultra processed foods that create this dopamine explosion. It's terrible. Um... You know, and if, as I think about cravings, I think we're never going to eliminate them. And yes, we can do a lot of things to optimize our gut so we have less of them, but they're going to happen. They're, they're inevitable. So to me, the big question is, what does one do when they have cravings? So like, it, it, you know, one, make sure you're hydrated, drink, drink water. Yes. Go for the sunny walk. So sun, um, sun actually releases a um, hormone in your brain called alpha MSH, is melanocyte stimulating hormone, which actually helps with satiation. And so, if you've ever noticed when you're on vacation, it's also because you're not stressed, but you're not as you're not craving the same um, terrible foods. Um, going for a sunny walk, the exercise portion of it as well. So exercise is another hack um, to actually get through those cravings and hunger. And then remember that gut health is fast. These microbes are 15 minutes. They have a half-life of 15 minutes. I mean, they their three days is all it takes to markedly change the environment in your microbiome. I found, find this very empowering, three days. Landmark study in nature show that within three days of changing a diet drastically, you were able to see a whole new ecosystem in there. And are there... So here you hydration, sunlight, exercise. I'm curious, are there certain foods that, you know, are, are snacks, are treats to some degree, but are going to check the boxes in terms of that combination of, you know, protein, fat, and a little bit of sugar to help meet our, our craving and at the same time not uh, be detrimental to our health? Like, for example, that, you know, you mentioned dark chocolate. Is it the combination of, okay, I'm going to have some dark chocolate with some amazing sunflower butter or almond butter uh, mixed together? So I'm getting sort of a little bit of the, the chocolate, the sweet, but I'm also getting the protein from the nut butter and maybe there's some something else. And is there something that is 
somewhat interesting. It's not like a bland, boring, you know, a meeting cardboard. It, but does help serve that purpose. Do you have any recommendations? Plenty there? of things. So when you look at these, um, when we're talking about, you know, raising your baseline dopamine levels and uh, feeling more satisfied, things like dark chocolate, coffee, a high quality coffee, green tea, nuts and seed butters, right? Um, uh, berries. So having a combination of all of those things, um, and uh, like dairy foods, so a lot of people have noticed that even though they can't do traditional dairy, but they can do a high quality cottage cheese or whipped, um, you know, yogurt or some kind of um, treat out of that. So those those are high dopamine foods, but there's also high serotonin um, boosting foods that can um, help you boost your serotonin. And you can eat some of um, those things. There's like pineapple and um, high. So turkey is kind of the traditional serotonin producing food because it has a tryptophan, but there's lots of other um, fun foods um, that have uh, the tryptophan, including um, dairy products. Again, and nuts and seeds again. So you really can do, like you said, a dark chocolate, um, a coconut cream or a whipped cream, and uh, you can add some berries to it. And that would be a really nice, I for me, actually, that's the most enticing treat is like doing the dark chocolate with the berries and some kind of uh, nut butter, and um, maybe a whipped topping. And that's like, you know, the healthiest dopamine serotonin filled thing. You sprinkle it with some nuts or seeds and you're ready to go. So you mentioned coffee and I am a huge fan of great quality black coffee. And when I do add to my coffee, it's it's never cream or milk or, or alternative milk or whatever. It, it, it's usually grass-fed ghee or grass-fed butter or some MCT oil or coconut oil. And whenever I do that, it seems to be magic. Can you can you are, can you explain why that seems to work? And those are all of those different combinations of the high quality ghee butter, the MCT, the coconut oil. What's happening there that makes that seem to work for so many people? It's different for everyone, but the real magic here is that you're mixing your caffeine with fat, right? So you're slowing the release of it. Like you don't just get that jolt of dopamine, caffeine, and you're like, you know, it's crash and burn, right? For most of us, when we have espresso or high quality black coffee, um, it's a rush of caffeine and dopamine, and then it's a crash. And so what the fat does, it kind of slows that absorption down so that you're getting a more sustained release. And what I think what you're feeling, and a lot of us feel, um, is that, um, is a longer lasting, maybe not as a peak and valley um, as the plain caffeine. And I always tell people that, you know, the bad thing about dopamine is that when you get a huge release, you also get kind of that, that down feeling. And so that's what happens with caffeine. You know, that's the mechanism of kind of having that post hangover after alcohol and drugs is because when you get a big release, you also get a big kind of a letdown. And I think that having fat with it helps with that. Yeah. I don't feel as hungry. That's, um, you know, your uh, fat definitely has a way of kind of turning off some of those hunger hormones. And it's a really, really effective way um, to keep some of the cravings and hunger at bay. That's why a little bit of fat goes a long way. The thing that I don't agree with in general in nutrition is 
overdoing it. So I don't think that most people benefit from high amounts of fat all the time because there's other things that happen um, when you choose fats, especially uh, poor quality fats um, that have an oxidative effect on your body, have a artery clogging effect. And so I think that a little fat is really good. Um, but you don't need to go overboard when it comes to fat because you're trying to control your cravings because it has some negative side effects. So we don't do nuance well. And so let's spend a moment on the fats in coffee. So the MCT, the coconut oil, the butter and the ghee. How much is too much? Because often people will, will hear, okay, butter in the coffee, and they're like throwing in like, a stick of butter. Exactly. Versus maybe a teaspoon or a tablespoon. The same goes for everything we just mentioned. What do you think is too much? What do you think is acceptable where you get that return of, okay, I get the healthy fat to you know, stop the, the brutal crash that often occurs for some people and also help curb my appetite? Yeah. Um, like you said, a teaspoon to a tablespoon is a good range to use in your coffee and in your cooking. You don't need to be putting a stick of butter. You don't need to be adding every fat to everything that you eat. What ends up happening with most people is that not only are they adding um, high quality fats like you are, uh, but they end up eating poor quality fats on top of that. So it's like the burger without the bun, right? Like it's the cheese uh, wrapped in um, olives or something like that. It's like this new, uh, when I see people doing a high fat diet, almost, I don't think I've ever seen someone do a very high fat diet, which was all high quality fats. Um, so that's why we really want to moderate how much fat we need. We need it for our hormones. We need it for our brain health. Uh, but we don't need to be adding more than a teaspoon to a ta tablespoon um, with each meal. And I think you, know, you mentioned the, the burger and the high-fat diet. What I've seen most people get wrong there is they forget about fiber. They do the high quality protein, you know, whether it's the, you know, the grass fed burger and, you know, the high quality fats and too much of it, they completely forget about fiber. Fiber is food for your gut bacteria. They are starving. Um, if you don't feed them the things it needs, it's fiber, it's polyphenols. Um, you know, it's the, the parts of the food that only can come from plants and fruits. You know, I mentioned my go-to's. So my go-to's is definitely the fat in the coffee, definitely the dark chocolate with some sort of nut butter. Uh, I'll do yogurt with cinnamon. I'll do like a high-quality grass-fed yogurt with, with cinnamon, maybe some great granola in there. Those are my go-to's. Always make sure I'm hydrated, obviously. What are your go-to's? Because it happens. It's going to happen. I know. And um, you have to be prepared. And I, I think what really helped me was to learn um, the serotonin and dopamine boosting foods, because I really try to keep those on hands, like um, berries and cherries, for example, are um, something that's great for your gut, but then also boosts your dopamine levels, right? So um, I love a high quality probiotic cottage cheese. Um, and I know cottage cheese is a charged subject, but, um, if you like yogurt instead or a coconut yogurt, that's fine. But I love probiotic foods. I love the apple cider vinegar. I love, um, I, 
I love vinegars because not only do they have an appetite suppressing effect and craving suppressing effect, but they also help your gut bacteria, especially when it's the raw probiotic um, version of it. And so um, vinegars, but my real go-tos for treats are hot drinks like chai, a latte, um, a, um, a warm drink has that effect of kind of satisfying the cravings. And then, you know, the little bit of caffeine that you get, it um, also does that. And um, dark chocolate is, is a winner all the way through for me and you, it sounds like, because I think that what you are getting from dark chocolate is um, the dopamine boost from the cacao, but the little bit of fat, you know, from um, that. And we really feel more satisfied when we have a combination of a dopamine supporting food, plus uh, a little bit of fat to give us that sensation of um, satisfaction. You know, it's funny, we've talked a lot about protein and fat, and I feel like macros to some degree haven't really been part of the conversation in our world for for as long as I can remember. But I feel like we're talking about them in a way that's productive because the reality is you do need a certain amount of protein. You do need a certain amount of fat in order to be, to function, to optimize, to maintain and grow lean muscle mass, to not be hungry all the time. Can't avoid the topic. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of macros. In fact, when I work with patients one-on-one, um, I often put them on a plan where that's an easy way to track that uh, shifts the focus away from calories because calories, you know, you could have a hundred calorie pack of Oreos and um, feel like you're doing a great job. But really what you want to do is get um, focus on how much fat, how much protein, how much carbohydrate, how much fiber that you're taking in in the day. What I noticed is that the fiber really helps calm the hunger and really helps you with the stretch receptors in your um, stomach. The volume actually has an effect of releasing hormones um, that keep you, you know, neuropeptide YY and cholecystokinin. These stretch receptors help release these things that make you feel fuller. So eating volume foods um, like um, salads and um, veggies and then looking at your macros to making sure, you know, that you're getting enough of that is one of the, I think the easiest strategies uh, for in today's world where it's really hard to just use your intuition to get that. And I'm curious, what do you aim for in terms of about a fiber on a daily basis and same goes for, for protein. Those are two hot topics these days. Yeah. So fiber, the minimum amount of fiber is 25 grams. And most people, 90% of people are not even getting 25 grams. So I always say um, 25 is your bottom 40 is your um, aim. You know, th that's a great way. And if you're eating fruits, vegetables, salad every day, I always say salad every day, um, veggies at every meal you're going to make that pretty easily. Um, but um, protein is a different one. It depends on what you're doing. If you're a sedentary individual versus if you're someone who's actively lifting weights, very active, I believe that um, there is a sweet spot um, for everyone that's different, right? So for me, um, one one gram of protein for body weight is still not that much because I'm not very heavy at all. But it's when I'm training actively, lifting weights, doing, you know, 15,000 steps a day, which is what I typically get. Um, that is what I need to build muscle. 
Um, so um, one to even a little bit higher than one gram per um, yeah, pound body per weight. Pound. Yeah. And so you can go up to 1.5, you can go, uh, but you really don't, especially as an aging adult, you'd really don't want to drop too much below the 0.8 um, uh, grams per uh, pound body weight, because then you are actively losing muscle as you age. And if you're not eating enough protein, you will see it not only in your hunger and cravings, but you'll see it in your muscle mass. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important topic and something we've been talking a lot about in the show. And I, I, I've seen it personally. And I think for people who are active, and again, different story if you're not active, probably don't need as much. But I would argue if you're not active, you need to get active. And then <laughs> we want you to be active. It can it can sneak up on you. And the older you get, the harder it is to to fix. In your 20s, 30s, you can put on muscle, lean muscle mass pretty easily and your body adapts. And I think as you, when you start to hit your forties and, and so on, it gets more difficult. And I found that. So it's an important one. Me too. I had never lifted weights before the last two years. And so I really transformed my diet. And after seeing the research on, um, you know, losing muscle mass, um, as you get older and I have a long history of osteoporosis in my family. And so I knew that I needed to change my diet and my exercise habits. And luckily it kind of coincided with this whole gut health world that says kind of the same things like, you know, do more exercise. Exercise is the best probiotic you can take actually. Um, and so I think that um, it all kind of plays nicely because if you improve your gut, you you know, crave the right things, you feel happier, and you feel um, you can live a longer, healthier life. Agreed. So in closing, the book is filled with so many great studies. I'm curious, was there one study that really stood out to you? The fact that you can transplant just gut bacteria from one animal to another, and you can completely switch their mental state was mind-blowing to me. So this is done now, recreated in humans, um, but the landmark study was like they took schizophrenic humans and they took just the gut bacteria from them and then non-schizophrenic humans and they put it into, transplanted it into guts, um, the gut of mice, that germ-free mice, meaning mice that did not have their own bacteria in their gut. And the researchers were able to pick out with 100% accuracy which mice had received the schizophrenic gut bacteria. There was nothing changed in their brains, but just from receiving that gut bacteria, they started to demonstrate um, behavior changes consistent with schizophrenia. And to me, I mean, that's just mind blowing that you did nothing to the brain. The gut has that much power, more power over your brain than even traditionally we think, oh, our thoughts control our brain. No, our gut controls our brain. Fascinating. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.